We are in Matthew chapter 6. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's actually part of a section on the Sermon on the Mount that we learned about in Sunday school today that leads us to ask the question, where is our focus? Where is our glory? Do we get our glory from the world around us or do we get glory from God? And we are looking once again at the Lord's Prayer. We're looking uh, beginning in verse nine to see how it is that we pray if we are going to focus on God's glory rather than our own. I know I've not read it in the other few weeks in which we have read through this, but I will read the edition that is down there. If you're in the NIV or the ESV is in the footnote um, down there at the bottom that we traditionally say when we say the Lord's Prayer. So hear the word of the Lord. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us for the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, how good it is to know that the questions we have about life, the questions we have about our walk with you, the answers are given to us in your word. Thank you for this clear teaching on prayer and help us as we look at this a conclusion to your prayer, help us to learn from it, not only about prayer, but about the trust that we can have in the scriptures. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So I'm going to go ahead and be honest with you. You're probably not going to like the introduction to this sermon. In fact, many of you may roll your eyes at me. Now, sometimes we don't like introductions to sermons because, well, you know, the preacher just meddles. Don't worry, that'll come later. Other times we don't like introductions to sermons because honestly, they just don't fit the sermon. I'm guilty of that as well. And sometimes we don't like introductions to sermons because they just don't grab our attention. They're boring and they have a tendency to be a little over our head. This one may fit into that. Today, I want to talk about why this particular line in the Lord's Prayer and shows up in modern translations in the footnotes instead of in the uh, in the text. Over the years, we have gathered manuscripts of the New Testament, manuscripts written in Greek, manuscripts written in Latin, manuscripts written in a Syriac version of Greek and Latin. And there are differences within Isabella. Just just praise. Amen. How are you doing? You want to come up and help? All right. Come on. Let's go. Come on. All right. You're going to help out here. Okay. We're going to learn about textual criticism today. Yes, we are. So if you were to go to seminary. And to get a, a degree, the Masters of Divinity degree, part of your Greek class would be a discipline called textual criticism. 
Now, textual criticism looks at all these different manuscripts that we have gathered together over the years, the Greek manuscripts, and it compares them. Now, why does it need to compare them? Well, because we have these manuscripts, because humans have taken the original documents that we have from Matthew, from Mark, from John, from Luke, from Paul, uh, from the author of Hebrews, and humans have copied them throughout the years. We more than likely don't have the original manuscripts of the New Testament. You doing all right? Yeah, it's kind of fun up here, isn't it? Yeah. And as humans have copied them, there have been mistakes that have been that have crept in to the manuscript. Now, what do I mean by mistakes? How many of you, when you were in elementary school, the teacher would write something up on the board and you had to copy it down on your piece of paper? Or maybe you had a little workbook that you had things in. It was one of the one of the tools that that teachers use to teach us how to write, whether it's print or whether it's cursive. How many of you did that perfectly every single time you copied either from the board or from the little notebooks? You didn't, did you? Sometimes you left the word out. Sometimes you switched letter orders in the word. Sometimes you would actually switch the word order in the sentence. And there were myriad reasons for that. Part of the reason is it may have been near the end of the day and you were just tired. And uh, even with the great advances in lighting and and uh, stimulating educational resources that we have. Sometimes it's just you're just tired at the end of the day and it's tough to get those things together. The scriptures were like that. These manuscripts that we have were like that. And so these gentlemen and, and ladies and gentlemen called textual critics um, compare the different manuscripts to see which of these mistakes are significant, which of these mistakes belong in there. Sometimes there's additions of words. Sometimes there's deletions of words. Sometimes there's additions of entire phrases. And they see which of those actually belong in the scripture. And they have a ranking system. Some of those are ranked pretty high in our confidence in them. Some of those are ranked pretty low, but they have a ranking system. Why do I tell you all that? Well, that's why our conclusion to the Lord's Prayer shows up in the footnotes of modern translations is because as they go through these ranking systems, they have discovered that the older manuscripts probably or not probably the older manuscripts, which we would think would be more pure, did not include for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But it is in a majority of manuscripts. It shows up in documents that were written by the church, extra biblical documents that were written by the church very close to the founding of the church. It shows up in that. There's a a book called The Teachings or the Didache that kind of tells us how to how worship was done in the early church and how Christian life was handled in the early church. And the conclusion handle shows up in that it shows up in Syriac manuscripts. It shows up in Latin manuscripts. It shows up in what we would call newer Greek manuscripts. And so there is a possibility that it was original. So they go ahead and they put it in the footnotes to let us know, hey, there's there's questions on this as to whether or not this belongs, but there's enough evidence that it may belong that we're going to put it in the footnotes rather than in the uh, in the text. Now, why do I tell you all that? Why do I 
risk boring you with textual criticism lesson here um, in the introduction to the sermon? Well, number one, I got an entire semester of it. And if I was bored, I wanted to share the misery with you guys. No, seriously. Number one is because it is important. It's important for us to understand where the New Testament text came from and that we can have confidence that what we have as the New Testament text, which is translated for us into English, is reliable. Is if it's if we don't have the original manuscript, we at least have the original words that the the apostles wrote down for us. It's also important for us to understand for a defense of the faith reason. Typically, textual criticism is, is, is considered a lower criticism because in the scholarly world, textual criticism actually gives us confidence in the text. The other forms of criticism, higher criticism, cause us to doubt the text. And so you can kind of see the bent of most of the scholars in this in that they the stuff that gives us cause to doubt the text is raised to a higher level than the stuff that gives us confidence in the text. But it's also important because people will spout off to us reasons why we shouldn't believe that include, well, there's a lot of mistakes in the original and the Greek manuscript. And we can say absolutely, for sure, there are. However, of the thousands of, quote, mistakes... There are no doctrines of Christianity that are at stake in any of those mistakes. They are grammatical errors. They are simple copyist errors that you and I would make if we were in the exact same place. Some of them are things like the the Lord's Prayer. If we read it without the for thine is the kingdom, it just ends, does it not? It just it feels kind of odd that it just like you bump up against the wall and the prayer is over. Yeah, I know. But so somebody added this in to kind of smooth out the transition. But that doesn't mean we can't trust the scriptures. That doesn't mean that any doctrine, any truth of the scriptures is at stake. In fact, Bart Ehrman, who was one of the leading textual critics who actually feels like textual criticism does the opposite of what it does, that textual criticism should lead us to unbelief, actually says there are no important or significant doctrines or truths in Christianity that are at danger because of the errors in the New Testament manuscripts. So I tell you that because it's important for us to have confidence in our um, in our text, and it's important for us to be able to defend the text well also. And if you're interested in learning more about that, I can send you some resources um, that are written for everybody to read. All right. So should we pray this when we say our prayer? If you notice every week as we preach through that, even though I haven't read the epilogue to the Lord's Prayer, we've prayed it anyway. But I think we should. And there's a couple reasons why we should. Number one, doxologies like this appear throughout Scripture. Doxologies, which are just declarations of praise, are appropriate responses to God's work. And the theology of this doxology is appropriate to the Lord's Prayer. You ready to go back? All right. There you go. 
And so today, as we look at the theology of this doxology that's appended to the Lord's Prayer, I want us to see two things. I want us to see that, number one, it's a plea to God. And number two, it is a doxology. It is praise to God. First off, it is a plea to God. Here we have this Lord's Prayer. Jesus has taught us to pray our Father in heaven, reminding us of the salvation and adoption that we have by the God who created all things. A call to having his name hallowed and glorified, not only in our own lives, but in the world. A call to the growth of his church, his kingdom coming, his his saints being sanctified in his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. The giving and providing of food and needs for life, the giving of forgiveness of sins and the, the ability and willingness to be forgiving people and the protection from temptation and the attacks of this evil one in our life. And this doxology reminds us that as we make these requests to God, this doxology reminds us that we are asking God to take care of these things. Look at the words that are used in this in this epilogue, in this appendage. For yours is the kingdom. We've asked God, your kingdom come. Well, it's his kingdom. Yours is the power. We've asked God to give us our daily bread to protect us. And it is his power that does that and his glory for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This is an an epilogue that reminds us that when we are praying to God, we are praying to the God who not only will answer prayer, but is capable of answering prayer. The word that is translated here, power, is not necessarily a word that just means strength or or the the magnificent power of a thunderbolt. This is a word that means capability. This is a word that means you have the ability to carry out these things. What we are saying here when we talk about God's power is, Lord, not only am I praying to you, I'm praying to you because you are able to answer my prayers. You are able to hear, you are able to carry out everything that you know that I need in answer to these prayers. We pray for his kingdom. God sovereignly rules all of creation. But he is the one who has planted a church and said that it is his church that will bring about his kingdom on this earth. But it's important for us to remember it is his kingdom. It's not ours. He's not saying, "Okay, I'm going to give you guys the church and I'll be back in several thousand years when I return and I'll see how you've done. No, it is his church that he is growing. When we say thy kingdom come. We are asking him to do what he is already doing. We are reminding ourselves that he is at work of growing his kingdom. And finally, his glory. As we get through the second half of the Lord's Prayer, as we ask for our daily bread to be given, as we ask for our debts to be forgiven, as we ask to be to for God to lead us not into temptation, but to guard us and deliver us from the evil one. We are reminded that he will answer that prayer according to what brings him glory as we pray this epilogue. And so as we pray for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, we are asking, we are pleading with God. Lord, I have given you these requests. 
answer them because I know you can. And that leads us to the second thing that we learn in this epilogue is that praise is to be part of our prayer. The prayer opens with our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this addition closes the prayer with praising God for his attributes. We take kingdom and power together and we see this the sovereign power that God has over all of creation and we praise him for it. We consider the glory of God in our lives and in the world around us and we praise him for it. That's part of hallowing his name. That's part of making his name holy is praising him for his attributes. Think of the Psalms as guides to prayer. Many of them have doxologies. The, the, the psalm that we started with today, our call to worship, shout with joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. David, in our Old Testament reading today, sat there and considered all the things that his people had gathered together. He had asked to build the temple and God said, you cannot build the temple, but your son will. And so David gathered together the resources to give to his son Solomon to build the temple. And as he looked at the resources that had been gathered to build God's palatial structure, what did he say? Did he say, God, you you told me to gather all this stuff for the temple and look what I've done. No, he said, praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father, Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Many commentators think this next verse is where the epilogue to the Lord's prayer came from. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. This is reminds us that our prayers should be marked far more by praise than by petition. Far more by seeking God's glory than our own needs. Now, I, don't hear me say, don't pray for yourself. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we should lead and end with praise for who God is. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. God's glory is far more important than our needs because he is going to answer our needs according to his glory. The ending of this prayer is a reminder that when things don't work out the way we prayed for them. God is in control. God is sovereign and God is working his glory. So even though it is likely not part of the original text, we still pray for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Although we should keep in the back of our mind that it is likely not part of the original text. So this conclusion to the prayer is a reminder to pray, knowing and understanding that it is God who answers prayer and carries it out. And that we must also pray, reminding ourselves that praise should be a very large part of our prayer, not merely petition. 
As far as the power aspect, I think this is a good thing for us to remember. Many times you've heard the saying, pray like it depends on God and work like it depends on us. I think it's good. I'm not sure it's the best saying, but I do. I do think it is a good reminder. But how often do we really follow it? How often do we pray like it depends on us? As well as work like it depends on us. How many times have you prayed, Father, do this, but thanks, I've got it. We don't typically say that out loud, do we? But that's our attitude. Father, I bring you this need. But I'll take care of it. Father, I'll bring you this desire, but I'll take care of it. Father, I will do X. But if you can help out, that'd be great too. The ending of this as we pray is a reminder that we are praying to the God of the universe. And when it comes to answered prayer. When it comes to being heard by God, when it comes to being given by God. He is ultimately the one that does it. Yes, we work. We don't just pray to God and then sit down and wait for the answer to show up. That's as much a lack of faith as what many of us often do. But we do pray just like we would go to our earthly father as a child as a wee child and ask them for stuff. We do it knowing that we can't do it. We can help, but it's only by the grace of our father that prayers are answered. So as you pray for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Remember that it is God's power that answers and he answers according to his glory for which he should be praised. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you so much for this reminder. Original or no, it's a reminder that you are to be praised in all things. And that answers to prayer are dependent upon you and your glory. Help us to rest in that knowledge. Help us to trust you in that knowledge, knowing that you work all things for your glory and through your power. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen.